Well, good morning, church. It's uh, great to be able to uh, worship with you this morning. So if you recall from the message last week, the gospel has been going out to the whole world. We read briefly about Jesus saying in Acts 1-9, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the world. And we've seen this happening, right? You know, we've seen the apostles were witnesses in Jerusalem and we've seen this power at work. Then persecution arose in Jerusalem as, as we heard again last week. Uh, it's, it drove the Christians out, and they were scattered to Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. God is sending his gospel out into the world. And we've been seeing how God has been tearing down these cultural barriers, haven't we? By entering into to the Samaritan city, and, and people were getting saved all over the place. And we finished off last week with verse 8 saying, So there was much joy in that city. Much joy in that city. Well, I've titled this sermon today, When Believing Doesn't Save, which may have kind of caused some reflection on that. But with the gospel comes joy. It comes changed lives. But it also comes with an enemy that doesn't like that. And today we're going to see one such attempt by this enemy to infiltrate the church to try to destroy it from within. Our passage today is just picking up where we left off last week, Acts 8, 9, verses, uh, sorry, Acts 8, 9 through 25. But before I read it, why don't we uh, spend a minute in prayer here. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the church. And we thank you for Jesus Christ who has paid for the church with his blood. We thank you, Lord God, that we can come together and worship. Lord, we pray that you would captivate our hearts this morning. Maybe for the first time, or maybe, maybe we need to be refreshed by this this morning. Maybe we've kind of strayed in our thinking. Maybe the world's ideas have caught, um, caught us all up in them. And, and now, Lord God, would you do this work, Lord? I pray also for me, Lord God, would you help me deliver your message today, Lord God? I pray that you would do a work in and through your people, through your word this morning. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen. So if you have your Bibles with me, we're on Acts 8, and we're going to read from 9 to 25, so follow along with me in your Bibles. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in, in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they, believed, when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, and they made that... that Sorry, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. 
Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through laying on, on the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of inequity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So we're introduced to this man, Simon. Right? We're told that he had previously practiced magic all throughout Samaria. You know, he, he was kind of a traveler. He would travel from town to town doing this magic works. And now he's found himself back in this Samaritan city when Philip is there preaching. And we read in verse 9, it says, He amazed the people of Samaria. He was somebody who captivated people all throughout Samaria. He was someone who did such incredible things that amazed the people. It left them kind of awe and gasping. He was kind of like that first century celebrity, if you will. You know? He was known everywhere that he went. And like many who have power and influence, it went to Simon's head. We read at the end of verse 9, that he amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Simon was full of himself. He was confident. He was a showman. He was all into himself. And notice Luke's words here says, he himself was somebody great. He boasted of himself. He saw himself as somebody significant, as great. See, Simon wanted status, and prestige, more than that, he wanted power. You know, the word used here for practice magic is only showed up once in, this, in the New Testament. But we see its noun form used in several places, and the word is magician. Simon was a magician. And when this word is shown up in the New Testament, it's very, very clear that it's used in a negative sense. Magic wasn't about illusions and trickery done by some clever man. Magic was connected with pagan and demonic powers. And we see this in Acts 13. We come across another magician named Eliamus. And with Eliamus, we read that he tried to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And we read about Paul's response to this man, and it's very direct and very forceful. And we read in verse 10, he says, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy. You see, we, we see very clearly that Paul doesn't see practitioners of magic as something uh, light. He realizes that there's a demonic influence tied to them, that there was a desire to destroy the faith of Christians. In verse 10, we read as it goes on that all the Samaritans, they paid attention to Simon from the least to the greatest, saying that this man was the power of God that is called great. So that is, it was the slave, it was the master, it was the child, the parent, the grandparent, everyone was captivated by Simon. Simon. 
His magic was so impressive, impressive and captivating that the people could only ascribe it as coming from God. So they said to Simon that he was the power of God that is called great. Now note, he's, they're not saying that Simon is God. They're saying he is the power of God. That is to say that God used Simon as an instrument, his vessel, to do these amazing works, and therefore they call him great. And of course, Simon, he just drank this up, didn't he? He loved it. He believed it about himself. You know, it's a dangerous place for someone to be where you can wow the crowds with something supernatural and you build a following because of it. We see this in our world today. Take, for instance, a man named Chris Volatin. He's a senior leader of Bethel Church in Redding, California and co-founder of Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry. He believes he can raise the dead. He says he's tried twice, but he hasn't, it hasn't happened yet. But apparently he knows Christians who have. He says that he's, he's observed this and some of these supernatural things in his life. On his website, he talks about, in one case, little white feather, feathers falling down upon the congregation when someone was preaching. In fact, it even expanded into other churches and home churches. And further reflection and investigation found that there was nobody sho shoving white feathers in the ventilation system. But he even describes one such case where gold dust appeared on people's faces and their hands. How about televangelist Kenneth Copeland, who told his television viewers that they were healed of the coronavirus as he prayed for them while they were to touch the screen of their TVs to receive the spiritual healing. We could go on and talk about many others. We could talk about Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism and his ex supernatural experiences. M Muhammad himself, the founder of Islam, he had similar experiences. The question is, are these things true? Do these things really happen? And if so, are they really from God? It's important for Christians to filter everything we see through the Bible. See, the Bible is our authority. It is where we find absolute truth. And we find ourselves sometimes thinking that because there's this miracle and it's surrounded by a soft, bright light and there's a sense of peace, that it must be from God. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, 14 and 15. He says, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. So how do we know if it is a miracle from God, if it seems wondrous and joyous? We always filter it, brothers and sisters, through the word of God and not our own sense perception. We have so many cults that have started throughout the time the church was born because people saw the hurt, or I should say, they, they thought they heard the word, the voice of God themselves personally, and that they were some special chosen instrument to build a people, a gathering. Simon sees, seems to think he is chosen by God to do such things. Christians, when we go beyond the pages of Scripture to find 
our source of truth, we open ourselves up to being deceived and captivated by the enemy. All unexplained and supernatural experiences in this life, they really need to fall under the submission of the Word of God. Well, Luke goes on and tells how it wasn't just that they were all amazed, but that this had been going on for a long, long time in verse 11. They had been captivated by Simon's magic for a long, long time. Simon could almost hypnotically take a crowd. The Samaritans were captivated by the enemy, and they didn't even know it. You see, this was not cheap tricks Simon was performing. You know, it's not like the guy who has the three balls on the table, or the three cups on the table, and he puts the ball under, and he moves them around, and you've got to guess which one it is, you know? It's not like someone saying, you know, pick a card, any card, you know? These, these are tricks. They're sleight of hand. Simon's magic had demonic backing to it, and it left them coming back again and again and again, and it was happening for a very long time. Justin Martyr, an early Christian apologist who lived in the second century, he actually wrote of Simon the magician. And he says in his writing, there was a Samaritan Simon, a native of the the village called Gitto, who in the reign of Claudius Caesar and in your royal city of Rome did mighty acts of magic by virtue of the art of, of devils operating in him by virtue of the art of devils operating in him. Remember Jesus' words about the last days in Matthew 24, 24? He says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Simon was an instrument for Satan to captivate people with demonic powers. This reminded me of something Joseph Goebbels said, the Nazi propagandist once, where he said, if you tell a lie big enough and keep repeating it, people will eventually come to believe it. I would say in our situation here, if you do big demonic magic enough and over and over, people will eventually be captivated and maybe even consumed by it. Christians, we, we need to stay away from the occultic practices and the influence that they have on us. Now, I'm not suggesting card tricks and fun magic shows where you say hocus pocus and you pull a rabbit out of a hat. You know, we're not talking about that. I'm not saying that at some kid's magic show you should say to the magician, you son of the devil, you enemy of all unrighteousness, full of deceit and villainy. I'm not saying that you do that. But there is a difference between illusions and occultic practices that set themselves up against the power of God and those we need to stay away from. And we read on in verse 12, but when they believed Philip as preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And this is a wonderful reality, brothers and sisters, that the power of Satan does not stand a chance against the power of God. And what hope that is that for us today? Satan cannot snatch you from the God's hands if you're a Christian today. Your unbelieving loved ones are not so captivated and caught up by the snares of Satan that God cannot save them today. And so Philip 
preached this kingdom. He preached Jesus. He preached the gospel. And Samaritans, they believed, and their response was to be baptized, both men and women. These marginalized Samaritans who had been rejected by the Jewish people for so long were being offered forgiveness, and they jumped at it. And I imagine that in a culture where the more marginalized Samaritan women were also being included, they probably jumped at it even more. And they didn't waste any time at obeying what was asked of them, and they were baptized. And what's fascinating in our passage today, in verse 13, we read, And Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs of great miracles performed, he was amazed. The captivator has now become the captivated. The captivator has now become the captivated. See, he would have heard the same message that the other Samaritans had heard, and he responded in the same fashion. And outwardly, there seemed to be no difference. He believed he was baptized. And we read in this passage here, in this section here, that after being baptized, he continued with Philip. It almost sounds like he wants to be Philip's disciple, doesn't it? But see, the word actually used here doesn't actually mean to be discipled. It's not, it's not a word that a student would use to refer to his rabbi. The word actually means one who attaches himself to or waits on. Simon wanted to hang around Philip. And we get a slight indication as to why Simon wanted to hang around Philip in the last part of this verse when it says, and seeing the signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. And I think this gives a little bit of indication that something was going on here, something different with Simon's belief than the Samaritans. Because we, we don't ever read that about the Samaritans and their response. What's fascinating that the word for miracles here could also be translated powers. And when we read in verse 10, when the Samaritans say, this man is the power of God that is called great, it would seem now that Simon is witnessing signs and true great powers of God through Philip. Where he amazed the crowds for years with his power, he now is left in awe of what true power of God looks like and whatever the cost, he must stick close to Philip. Simon, the captivator, has now truly become the captivated one. And this leads to our second observation found in verses 14 through 24. When one is captivated by the wrong thing. When one is captivated by the wrong thing. In verse 14, we read that now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to him Peter and John. See, the word had spread to Jerusalem, or from Jerusalem to Samaria, or from Samaria to Jerusalem. And they had heard that Samaritans had received the word of God. This newfound faith made ripples through all Samaria. And note that Luke's emphasis here is that it was the word of God that Samaria had received. It was not the power of God done through signs and miracles by Philip, but it was the word of God that they received. The Samaritans had received the word of God with joy, and now it was spreading, and Peter and John are sent to investigate. In verse 15 and 16, it says that when they came down, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not 
fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. We must remember that this is, this is a u- unique time in church history. Acts is a descriptive book. It's not a prescriptive. It's describing the birth of the church as it goes out from the Jewish nation to the Samaritan Gentile nations. And the hope that we have, the reality that we live today is that salvation, you are baptized by the Holy Spirit. You are immersed in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and resides in you. He is called the encourager and the comforter. He is the deposit guaranteeing you of your future inheritance. That's something that we have at the moment of salvation. And so they come down and what happens We read in verse 17 that they lay their hands on them and they, in fact, received the Holy Spirit. And Scripture does not tell us what was exactly observed at this moment. There was some sort of manifestation of the Holy Spirit and we have this idea that it rivaled kind of the signs and miracles that were performed by Philip because Simon is amazed by this. He's, He's captivated by what he's seeing and he wants this power for himself so that he can continue his life of amazing the crowds. In verse 18 and 19, we actually see what Simon's response is to the supernatural event. It says, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now we see that there's something more different about Simon. Before it was his actions. He was wanting just to kind of hover and hang around. And now we're seeing something different in his words. What would drive Simon to offer money for the Holy Spirit? Well, in their culture as it is in ours, the way you acquire something is through money. Magicians would pay for their service. No different today. You can pretty much buy anything you want if you have enough money. Right? If you... You know, if you have the money, you could buy mansions, sports cars. You know, you could even buy islands. And if you're someone like Elon Musk and have $44 billion, you could buy Twitter. The more money you have, it seems like there's pretty much anything you can buy in this world, right? But it's very important to realize it doesn't work that way with God. You can't buy God and you can't bribe God. And Simon was trying to buy the Holy Spirit. Simon had a superficial belief and not a biblical belief. He had a worldly belief. Simon cared more about getting the power of God than receiving the word of God. He cared more about getting the power of God than receiving the word of God. This is really no different than what Jesus experienced. We read in John 2, 23 to 25, when it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. See, in our world, we so often talk belief as being some sort of intellectual exercise, you know? You know, I believe my car is going to get me from point A to point B. I believe that the food I'm eating is healthy for me. I believe that the dentist knows what he's doing. 
I believe the guy driving in front of me has a license and knows how to drive. And often we don't even question these things. Well, maybe the last one we sometimes question. <laughs> but belief goes deeper than that. We know that Muslims believe their religion is true. Atheists believe what they believe is true. In fact, there are many people who believe in Jesus and were baptized, and they're not saved. They believe Jesus existed. They believe he was a good person. They may even believe he is God and still not be saved. See, it's not belief that Jesus is God that is what really saves. That's important. But demons believe this, and they're not saved. You guys remember Legion in Luke 8, 28? Remember what he said to Jesus? What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? See, Simon did not have this biblical belief. He did not see himself as a sinner needing to be saved from God and by God. He did not see Christ's sacrifice as personal to him, but a means of gain. Simon did not understand the heart of God to give himself freely to people who know they are in desperate need of him. Simon wanted God for what he could get out of God. His question shows that he had a bad heart. He still wanted status, prestige, and most importantly, he still wanted power. He had just found a new power that was greater than he wanted more. And Peter understood this right away. In verse 20 and 21, he gives this stinging rebuke to Simon by saying, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Now I want to kind of put a little disclaimer in here real quick. Uh, we need to be on guard that every time our fellow brother or sister in Christ says something that we question, we don't put on that Christian detective hat, you know, and, and start to say, you neither have part or lot in this matter, because it's clear your heart's not right before God. Some of you may have heard of Augustine's famous quote, in essentials unity, in a non-essentials liberty, in all things charity. We need to be aware of what those essentials are, we need to be aware of the non-essentials. And because of our conversations, they will go very differently depending on which ones we're talking about. And in both scenarios, we need to be, behave and speak in love. So some of those essentials are the deity of Christ, the Trinity, that God is one being in three persons, that Jesus was fully God and fully man, that salvation is entirely by God's grace, that Jesus died physically, taken on the wrath of God, and he rose physically from the dead. See, if you're talking with someone who professes to be a Christian and they do not agree or understand this, then it is appropriate to sit down with them and walk them through the Bible showing these things and calling them to, to repent and believe the gospel, but all in love and in patience. We're not Peter and we don't have his authority Simon needed to move from the superficial belief to a biblical belief. This biblical belief is a belief that clings to, it trusts, you know. When the most famous passage in the Bible, John 3, 16, and we read it earlier, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It is not saying, I believe Jesus existed, 
So I guess I have eternal life. It is saying, I believe it with my whole being who Jesus is, what he says and what he has done, and I'm clinging to this truth through all the storms of life. Peter understood that Simon just didn't get this. Simon's heart was not changed. Simon needed a repentant heart. You see, he was still under this demonic influence, and why, in verse 21, he says, your heart is not right before God. And we know if Simon's heart was not right before God, it was because God had not given him a new heart, as Ezekiel 36, 26 says. And why? Because he never repented. And this is exactly what Peter calls Simon to do in our next verse, verse 22. He says, Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours. Pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. The call to repent is all throughout the book of Acts. And this is the problem for every person apart from Christ is that we have a bad heart. We needed the intent of our hearts to change. When we talk to the unbeliever about the gospel, we need to first make sure that we share the bad news for them to see the seriousness of their situations. They need to understand that. These are to draw out some of the tangible sins that people have committed in their life. Have they stolen? Have they lied? Have they lusted? Have they been bitter, jealous, or envious? See, these tangible sins reveal that we have a heart condition and the heart needs to be addressed. It's like dealing with the symptoms of someone who's sick and never dealing with the actual sickness, you know? Peter is saying, you need a new heart, Simon. Without this new heart, you will perish. And without this new heart, the symptoms are just going to keep coming. In verse 23, Peter actually gives two of these tangible sins, something that Simon kind of hang his hat on, you know, showing Simon's bad heart. He says, first, I see that you are in the gall of bitterness, the gall of bitterness and the bond of inequity. The gall of bitterness. It's kind of an, it's an idiomatic statement. It really what it means is Simon was consumed by his bitterness, you know, if you read some other translations, they'll say things like full of bitterness or poisoned by bitterness. He was bitterly envious. Simon had wanted this power so bad, it was all that mattered to him. You know, if bitterness is left unchecked in your life, it will only go from bad to worse. If bitterness is left unchecked, it will only go from bad to worse. You ever have those you know, you probably heard those stories, or maybe, unfortunately, you're part of them, those family kind of special events in Christmas times where suddenly two family members start to get in this massive fight, and suddenly they, they stop talking, and months go by, and they're still not talking, and then years go by, they're still not talking, and when you ask them, what was it all about, they don't remember, but they still know the feelings of bitterness that they have towards that person. They know that they're just angry with that person. It doesn't just go away some of you may be struggling with this today. Holding on to things you did not get or maybe how someone treated you. And you think, you know, I deserve better than that. Who do they think I, they are? Some of you might have heard the saying, bitterness is the poison you drink expecting the other to die. Bitterness is the poison you drink expecting the other to die. You want them to suffer for what they did to you, but all the while... You're the one who's suffering. 
Simon was in the gall of bitterness. Simon was also in the bond of inequity, the bond of inequity. He was a slave to his sin. He had not been set free from his sin. He was captured by his sin. And as Christians, we, knew, we are new creatures in Christ and no longer slaves to sin. Paul says in Romans 6, 17, and 18, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Having set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. The bond of inequity has been broken for the Christian. Amen. So how does Simon respond to such weighty words from Peter? Peter just called Simon to repent and pray to the Lord. In verse 24, we get Simon's answer. Simon says, pray for me to the Lord, Peter, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. You see, Simon didn't get it. He didn't understand his own weakness, and he didn't understand the grace of God. And he asked Peter to pray for him. No one gets saved without them being the ones who repent and believe. Do we pray for our family members? Absolutely. Do we pray for our unsaved friends? Absolutely. Is there anything wrong with asking people to pray? Absolutely not. We pray that God would change their hearts so that they themselves would repent and believe. And here Peter had just told Simon what he must do. And Simon deflected it back to Peter. This shows that Simon is not broken over his sin and his situation before God. You know, he may be sincere in what he's asking, but we all know sincere people can be wrong too. Simon was going to Peter as though Peter could get it done for him. You know, if a man came to me confessing how he cheated on his wife. And I brought this man before his wife, and he asks me to ask his wife to forgive him. It's probably not going to carry much weight with her. You know, she wants to hear that from him. Now, if the same man came before his wife, and he's trembling, and he's shaking, and he falls to his knees, and he pleads with tears flowing from his eyes, please, please forgive me. This has weight. This has heart. And this shows brokenness. And this is what Peter was calling Simon to do before God. And if you do not know Christ today, this is what he's calling you to, to do today. For Simon, he has shown he is captivated by the wrong things. He was captivated by power. This is where our hope comes in in our final verse, verse 25, when one is captivated by the person and work of Jesus Christ. When one is captivated by the person and work of Jesus Christ. In verse 25 it says, Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. You see, the gospel has gone forth. It has broken through cultural divides, and one encounter with a bitter, envious, demonic-controlled magician was not going to stop them from continuing to proclaim the hope found in, in the gospel. These formerly rejected and marginalized Samaritans had embraced the gospel, and their lives would never be the same. They had become captivated by Jesus Christ. 
And we have Peter and John, apostles, who they themselves are captivated by Christ. And they do what captivated by Christ people do. They go and preach the gospel to others. They share that with others. This great hope, the gospel that saves, that, that Christ who came and lived that perfect life, who, took, who died, who took the wrath of God paying for your sin, who rose from the dead, and we too can have new life in Christ. And through rep- biblical belief and repentance, this gift is offered to all. When one does that, they are given the best blessing, the best gift, Christ himself. And you become captivated by the Christ. Why is this important? See, as Christians, we are to be captivated by the person and the work of Jesus Christ and not what we think we can get out of God. One leads to salvation and the other to eternal separation. Well, we found that the enemy's tactics to infiltrate the church through Simon has failed. But what would ever happen to Simon? Did he ever repent? Well, history would say, no, he didn't. Satan would continue to try to use him to attack the church. He's done this through the ages. Irenaeus, an early church father who lived in the second century, called Simon the father of all heretics. He's attributed to giving rise to the Gnostics and their heretical teaching in the second century. And when power is all that you want, then all you want is more of it. Justin Martyr goes on to write about how Simon would become considered by many a god. He would become that place where people would see him as a god. And they would actually honor him with a statue in Rome with this inscription, to Simon the holy god. What a dangerous place. Christians, we do not worship any man. We do not follow any man. We worship and follow and are captivated by the God-man, Jesus Christ, as revealed in Scripture. So how about you? Are you captivated by captivating people who draw you away from Christ? Are you captivated by the Simons of this world? Are you captivated with status and prestige or power? Is that what life is all about for you? Or are you captivated by Jesus Christ and him alone? Is he your hope? Is he your satisfaction? Is he your salvation? I hope he is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord God, that you called us out of darkness. You snatched us from the world of darkness, from the power of Satan. You've called us to yourself, Lord God. Thank you, Lord God, that you keep us, that you never leave us or forsake us, Lord God. We pray now, Lord God, that you would grow us in this, Lord God. If we've strayed, if we've been distracted by the cares of this world, have they, they become giants in their own, Lord, would you orientate our thinking back to Jesus Christ? Would we fall in love with you all over again? And we ask this now in Christ. Amen.